And so, Father, teach us now through your word, instruct us and guide us through your Holy Spirit, that we would ever be conforming to the image of our Lord Jesus and growing in the grace and in the knowledge of your word and grasping even at a deeper level what it means to be your children, born not of the law, but of grace through the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for our Bibles and the historical accounts that we're studying that are so important for us to grasp that we would live well the Christian life. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This past Friday afternoon, my family and I were in our van heading down Interstate 81. I was invited to speak at my brother-in-law and sister's church in Covington, Virginia, and they were having an outdoorsman, a hunter, sportsman dinner, and I was the guest speaker. Howard had called and asked me to speak, and it's always our joy to connect with them. They are 10 years ahead of us in ministry and have been more than role models. They have been very much... A a pattern that we have of faithfulness in ministry that has impacted our lives. So we love to be with them and to fellowship with them. We were heading down I-81, and it was just a beautiful day, Friday. Uh, we had a break in the cold weather, and the pavement was dry, and the sky was blue, and uh, we were enjoying being together as a family. And uh, somewhere down below Harrisonburg, Virginia, the traffic slowed, and we looked over, and there was a deep um, cut bank, and there was an on-ramp that had circled around. And you can kind of picture how the elevation drops down into those bowls. And we noticed, and I couldn't look uh, long because I was driving and the traffic in front of me was slowing to look as well. But just minutes before we had arrived, a single car incident had occurred. And a, a type of an SUV had driven off of the road somehow. I don't know how or why. A state trooper was on the on-ramp and had already stopped and was jumping the guardrail, running down. A couple other cars had stopped. And as I glanced over, deep down in, maybe with 30 feet drop in elevation down into this bowl... This car had rolled, obviously, from the signs in the sod and in the grass and was, uh, had ended up on top of its roof, on top of itself. The doors were all splayed open, and I just happened to be able to glance and make contact and a snapshot picture. And there sitting in that upside-down car, sitting now, what was the ceiling of the car, the back door open, was a, a woman. I couldn't tell her age, but she seemed more old than young. And she was sitting there with her elbows on her knees, and she had her head bowed as though she was trying to orient herself to the reality of what they had just lived through, or uh, she had just lived through. I couldn't tell if any other people were in the car. It appeared that there would have been, and it was uh, filled with luggage now jumbled up. And there she was, the way the car rested in the ditch and in the, on the, the topography there, her feet had, were on the ground and she was seated in the inside ceiling of the, of the van. And I thought, my heart pitied them for one thing and it breathed up a prayer, somebody hurt, and um, drove on. And I thought, isn't that a lot how life goes? It's a beautiful day. The sun came up. We have a plan. We're going on a trip. We're connected with the ones we love and 
And we have a destination in mind and we have a strategy in mind and we know what we want and we've set goals and we know where we're going. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, whether it's a tractor trailer coming over on, uh, without seeing us or whether we fell asleep at the wheel, somehow life takes a sudden change and a turn and we're upside down and all shook up and messed up and broken. And I never planned for my life to be like this. Do you know that feeling? They didn't plan to be down in a ditch, sitting in the ceiling of their van, cut and bruised. They planned to be somewhere else. And I suspect this morning, if, if we had time, we could take the microphone and we could go up and down the aisles this morning. And you could tell your stories of a sunny day one day and how you loaded the car and headed off. I speak allegorically now. And you started out in your life and you knew where your life was going to go and you knew what you were going to accomplish and you knew what God was going to do in your life and then all of a sudden, life took a turn right in the middle of the party, right in the middle of the plan, right in the middle of your objectives. Your bottom fell out. Your car took a roll. Your life came from together. And you're like, how did I get here? How did, how did my plan fall apart so easily? I suspect that that's a little bit of the feeling that Abraham has in Genesis chapter 21. And I invite you to turn to 21. If you were here last week, you know that we've picked up the first uh, seven verses of Genesis 21. And that Isaac, the child of promise, has been born you know that um, at this time, Abraham is full of hope and joy. You know that Sarah's laughter has, has just carried across the valley from her tent where she's held this child in her old age. She was able to deliver a baby according to the promise of God. He was faithful to them. The world is in good order. All is well and the sun is shining. Let's read the story. It, we're going to read clear through the end of the chapter because I would like to pick up with chapter 22 next. And, um, and I want us to read through this text it, it, and, and you follow along because I'm going to read rather quickly. You'll be able to understand what's going on and we'll break it down for some life lessons today. Genesis chapter 21, beginning with verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent, off, sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. And then she went off and sat down nearby, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there nearby, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and an angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, 
What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And so she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show to me and the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness that I have shown you. Abraham said, I swear it. And then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You did not tell me, and I heard about it only today. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. And Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you have set apart by themselves? And he replied, Accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. So that place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. It's an interesting historical account that Moses gave the children of Israel so they would have details of their past, and who they were, and why they were who they were. Let me just comment briefly, because I love trees. I referenced that a few, year, few weeks ago. We'll probably not make it to verse 33 specifically. But it's not a bad practice when you have an important event in your life to plant a tree to note it. Do you notice what Abraham did? He planted a tree to mark the time and mark the spot that every time he would see that tree, he would remember what happened and what God did in his life. That's a good practice. You ought to plant a lot of trees in your life. You ought to cut a lot down too and burn them, but you ought to plant a lot of trees too. Well, let's look back at the beginning. I want to break this down into three parts. First of all, I want us to see that we are dealing with, number one, a very emotional situation in this passage. Secondly, I want to reference that emotional situation. And the second thing we want to reference is that it provides, as we've read in Galatians, a doctrinal illustration. And thirdly, we'll just comment on that extended final passage, verse 22 to 34, a political calculation by Abimelech. Let's look at the emotional situation in which we find ourselves the child grew and was weaned. Well, we have the child of promise. For a baby boy to be weaned, he was probably three or four years old. And we note in verse 8 that we have the information that on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. This is when the mommy is no longer going to be the primary feeder, in essence. And the boy will begin to eat table food, and he's weaning off of his mother. And uh, there's a big celebration. He's no longer a baby. We have a little boy. Let's celebrate. And Abraham throws a feast. And Abraham wakes up on this day, and I'm sure the sun was shining. I'm sure that he had a plan that day, and I'm sure that all was well in Abraham's tent city. He was throwing a party, and 
All of a sudden, Abraham's SUV rolls over. Verse 9, we have the first note of our emotional situation. We see Ishmael's disrespect. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking Somewhere in this party, somewhere in this celebration, and you'll notice in this passage that Ishmael's name is never mentioned. Sarah will describe him as the son, that son, that son of that woman. God is going to reference him and others will reference him in the passage as the boy. His name is never mentioned. It's Ishmael. And Ishmael is older now. We know from chapter 16 in Genesis that Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. We'll reference in a minute, remember the reminder of the plan where Sarah got Hagar, her handmaid, and Abraham married her and made her his wife. And through Hagar, he conceived a child and that child was born and it was Ishmael. And it was 14 years before Isaac was born because Abraham in chapter 16 is 86 years old. And we know from our previous passage here that Abraham is now 100 years old when Isaac is born. And so 14 years have gone by and now the boy is old enough to be weaned. And so three or four more years have gone by. So 14 plus three equals 17. He might be 18 years old. If they're using round numbers, it's possible he's as young as 16. But he's in that age bracket of a middle, older teen. Somewhere in the middle of the party, Ishmael shows disrespect to Sarah. You'll recall from previous passage that his mother did the same thing to her, to her mistress. She was a servant to Sarai. And when Sarai suggested that she marry her husband and have a child in proxy for her, in essence, after she became pregnant, she mocked her mistress. We don't know, the text doesn't say what happened, but somewhere in the middle of the feasting, somewhere in the middle of the party, we don't know how he did it, but we can only imagine that Ishmael understood entirely and completely what was happening, and that he wasn't too happy about it. You see, ever since this Isaac kid came around, his daddy hadn't been paying as much attention to him. We know from the passage that Abraham loved Ishmael. But when Isaac was born, and when, when Sarah became pregnant with Isaac, everything became all about this son, no longer about him. Harder to get his daddy's attention now. And then when that boy was born, huh, he might as well be fatherless. This Isaac, the apple of his father's eye, the laughter to his mother Sarah, who's Hagar and Ishmael. And I suppose that somewhere during the middle of this feast and this party and this celebration, when this boy was weaned, he had about had it up to here. We don't know what he did, but Sarah looked up and saw him do it. He either mouthed words or he took a jingle or a rhyme of their songs that they were singing. And maybe Ishmael off to the side changed the words to the song and sang his own song. And he belittled Isaac and he put down Sarah. Maybe he gestured with his fingers. I'm sure it showed on his facial expression. But whatever it was, it communicated. And Sarah says, I am outraged. We have Ishmael's disrespect. We move into Sarah's outrage, verse 10. And she says to Abraham, get that woman and her son out of here. Oh, this had been a rub for a long time, hadn't it? This blended family just didn't work well. All kinds of issues. And that other person's kid, I want him out of here. 
which thirdly turns into Abraham's distress. Notice verse 11, Abraham says, it says that the matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. How overwhelming it was. Abraham had to think, how did I get into this? I have a wife, Sarah. I have a wife, Hagar. I've had sons with both of them. Now they can't stand each other. I'm in the middle. We were just having a big party. Everything was going great. And now my home is falling apart. God speaks to him right then and gives some direction. God's direction, number four. And God affirms what Sarah has said because God has a greater sovereign plan. God is going to do something in Ishmael. Make him into a great nation. Yes, he's going to be in conflict with Isaac and his children. Even though they're half-brothers. It's the Arab-Israeli problem of today is what it is still. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, Do not be distressed about the boy and your maidservant. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And I will make the son of the maidservant into a nation also, because he is your offspring. In other words, Abraham, you need to be careful here. I know you're distressed, but I'm going to take care of Ishmael. With that word of hope and confidence... It says early the next morning. You'll notice in our next text, chapter 22, verse 3, when Abraham does that most remarkable event of taking Isaac up to the mount to sacrifice him, literally. 22, verse 3, he says early the next morning. When Abraham got the word from God, now at this point in his life, Abraham does it. He's a man of obedience. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water. And we have now, number five, Hagar's departure moving into Hagar's distress. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food, a skin of water, gave them to Hagar and set them on her shoulders and set her off with the boy. This is desert. This is arid. This is hot sun country. This is where you'll die out in the desert in the daytime if you don't have shelter. Abraham cares about them. I would not want to have been there with him. He rose early, I think, also, so that nobody else was watching, perhaps. He rose early because if you have to do it, you better get it over with. How do you walk up to your 17-year-old son and say, Boy, you and your mother have to go. You can't live here anymore. How do you say to your 17-year-old son, Son, things are different now and you don't live in my house anymore. You're gone. And so early in the morning, he pushes them out. And it's Hagar's departure. It turns into Hagar's distress because it's not long in her emotional distress. It turns to physical weakness. And I don't know why a 16, 17, 18-year-old boy seems to be the one who's going to die first. I don't know if it's kind of like he didn't get his chips and pizza and Pepsi, so I'm going to die. And he's exaggerating. Or if he is so overwhelmed with the reality of their condition that he has lost hope. And his father has rejected him. And he's out in the desert with his mother. I think you cannot overstate the toughness of these desert women, for one thing. But Hagar seems to have the strength. And this boy is failing quickly. And this is the kind of conditions where you can die very rapidly. And she is so distressed. And then once again, like happened so many years before, about 17 years before, God speaks to her. And number six, God promises. God gives a promise and provision God heard the boy crying, verse 17, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies here. Lift the boy up, take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. 
God then opened her eyes and showed her where there was a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. We then conclude this section with a postlude. And we are told that God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and he became an archer. And while he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. We will encounter Ishmael in the future of the book of Genesis. But that's kind of his story right there. What an emotional situation. A household divided. We'll come back to this section for our application, life application today. But as we break down the rest of the passages, let me just make reference. We already read Galatians chapter 4. And point number 2 in our big outline this morning. First of all, an emotional situation. That's what we've just looked at. Secondly, this story is a doctrinal illustration. And let me just say this much about it, based upon the Galatians 4 passage that the Apostle Paul clearly uses Hagar and Ishmael as an illustration of the flesh and of the law, and Isaac and Sarah represent grace and faith alone. It's a reminder, even in our Old Testament, that you cannot work your way to heaven. And that when Sarai came up with the plan that Abram, they've had their names changed by God, in case you don't know that, to Sarah and Abraham, if you're new to our study. Sarai came up with a plan 17 years before and said, I got it. I'm too old to have children, but my young handmaid, Hagar, I'll have Abraham marry her, which was legal in that day. Marry her, lie down with her, and off, off from her, Abraham will have a seed, and that will be the seed of promise, a child of promise. That was manipulative. That was an act of the flesh. That was an act that totally lacked faith. And God is saying in this passage through the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4, that if you are part of a system that is trying to do works for your salvation, you need to get out of it. He's saying that you cannot circumcise yourself. You cannot do any religious deed. There are no beads that you can count. There is no caffeine that you can leave alone. There is nothing that you can do for your own righteousness, whatever system you're in. No matter how many times you bow down on a prayer cloth a day, you cannot get to heaven by saying prayers or doing good works. It is a free gift. Do you know how Isaac was born? It is only by his gracious gift. It was only by his plan. He's the one who gave life to Sarah so that she could be impregnated in her old age, a body as good as dead. It was a free gift of God. It was part of his plan. That's how you get salvation. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone, no works, lest any man should boast. Don't miss that. As an illustration in this passage, that's a doctrinal illustration about our salvation. And so the question you want to ask yourself is, do I know that I'm a child of God by his grace through faith in what Christ did alone for me at the cross when he became my sin bearer and he shed his blood for my sin? And by faith, I believe in Jesus Christ. I've accepted that free gift of his salvation and I'm not doing any works to try to impress God. If you're doing works to try to impress God, you're failing. You're under the law. You have to keep the whole law, Paul said. Okay? You're Ishmael. You're Hagar. It's a deed of the flesh. You're not a child of promise. A child of promise is one who comes with no ability of their own, like Sarah, to do anything. And God says, I give you life. Everlasting life. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish 
but have everlasting life. Amen? There it is. It's a good thing. None of us can keep the law. There's a doctrinal illustration. The last section, you can reread yourself if you're interested. It's just kind of a historical account there that I think that the Israelites of old would be more interested than we are today. I think there's a couple points that are worth noting. I called this section number three a political calculation. You remember that Abraham had lied to Abimelech earlier about his wife Sarah. And so now we have Abimelech and the head of his soldiers coming to Abraham and making a treaty, a peace treaty, not just for himself, but for generations to come. And do you notice that why he did it? Look what it says in verse 22. It says, he said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Abimelech had some sense of a fear of God and he recognized in Abraham after watching him that God was with him in everything he did. And he wanted no part of a conflict with Abraham because he knew he'd be dust under the thumb of God. And so he made a generational peace treaty. Abraham makes this deal over a well, gives him animals to seal the contract so that they know I dug the well, I'll give you payment for it to prove it and so forth. And this is my well. And they made this peace treaty. A verse from Proverbs comes to my mind. It says, um, for a righteous man, a man who walks with God, he makes even his enemies to live at peace with him. It's interesting, isn't it? You want to be blessed by God? You want your enemies even to come to you and say, I know that God is with you. What a testimony. What a reputation. And so he made a political contract. He, made a, he calculated that he had better make a peace treaty. Well, there's the general structure of our message today. An emotional situation, a doctrinal illustration, some political calculation. Will you give me five more minutes or so that I can make some life application, particularly about other people's kids? Do you know that we live in a culture now, and you know, I'm not even, I didn't even research statistics because everybody knows that blended families are part of the fabric of our culture now. Many of you deal with this situation. And when we step back from this, I wanted to encourage you. I wanted to make a few statements that I hope will be helpful. First of all, let me remind us in practical application this morning, number one, kind of a no-brainer, and it's not a beatdown, it's just we must face this reality first. Number one, as we look at our story, we are reminded that sin always complicates family relationships. Sin always complicates family relationships. Some of you have been the innocent recipients of that. Some of you have been the causative agents of that. So here we are today. What do we do? First of all, let's acknowledge anything that is sin that I must take care of. And if I have sinned against my family and if I have sinned against God and if I've sinned against his word... I must start new today, humbling myself before Almighty God and acknowledging that. And young people who are still looking forward on a sunny day to taking a trip through the rest of your life and you don't want your car to end up in the ditch, just remember that sin will damage, destroy, and complicate family relationships if you let them in the door. Secondly, a word of encouragement to any young men where you may be related today to Ishmael. There may be some young men, maybe some old men, maybe some girls and daughters too. And you've seen, maybe with tears coming down his face and maybe with anger in his face, and you've had your father look at you and say, you can't live here anymore. 
Maybe you've experienced a rejection like Ishmael did. Can I remind you of a precious reality of the Word of God? Numerous times, let me reference two, we'll not look them up. Psalm 68, verse 5. Proverbs 23, 10 and 11. Psalm 68, 5. Proverbs 23, 10 and 11. He says there, You fatherless ones, I will be your father. I will be a father to the fatherless. And I wonder if you've allowed your heavenly father to be your father. I don't even know what you've gone through. I have such a great history with my father. I can only imagine the difficulty of dealing with these matters. But we learned last week, didn't we? And we camped on it, that God keeps his promises. And if you have a troubled situation and you are fatherless in essence, will you latch onto this truth and let God be your father? And will you grow up under him even if you're old already? Somewhere along the line, you've got to put the past behind you. That's point number three. First of all, sin always complicates family relationships. Deal with the sin. Number two, God is a father to the fatherless. Let him be your father. Number three then, you cannot undo the past. Don't let the inequalities and the injustices, parentheses, sin of the past ruin your future. It wasn't Ishmael's fault, was it? And one of the things that we get out of this story is that God would be his father and God had a plan for Ishmael. And God would make him into a great nation. Listen, you can live in the past or you can move forward with an expectation and an anticipation that God is going to do something with you now. For those of you that might be in a situation currently, presently, of a blended family, I want to click off some statements I've written them. It will only take a minute. Some practical, I trust, wise advice for dealing with other people's kids in your home. You see, we have a picture here. We have a story here where a woman looked across at somebody else's kid and said, get them out of here. And it broke their home apart. And it grieved the heart of Abraham and he had to tell his boy to get off his property. It's an incredible story when you think about it. First of all, some practical wisdom advice for dealing with other people's kids in your home. Number one, recognize that it's not the child's fault. If you have other people's kids in your home, number one, it's not their fault they were born. Most often, the children are the victims, aren't they? So don't take your anger or frustration from any part of your relationship out on the kids, especially other people's kids. Don't hold the child responsible for the choices and the behavior of the parent. Number two, if, like Sarah, you knowingly engage in a relationship that involves other people's kids, you must accept them with love and grace. Did you get that? If, like Sarah, remember, Sarah's the one who said, I got it. I got an idea. Hagar, you marry my husband. You lie down with him and we'll have a baby, I promise. And we'll all live happily ever after. Until, Sarah, until Hagar's walking around patting her tummy saying, nah, 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 nah. And Sarah says, get off my property. And it never went away. Until 17 years later, with teeth clenched and in a hissed voice, she forced her husband to get him out of there. 
If you, like Sarah, knowingly engage in a relationship that involves other people's kids, you must accept them with love and grace. If you're in a second marriage or you're in a relationship and there's other people's kids and you know it going into it, then you had better make up your mind that you're going to love those children with a special grace from God. You ask God to give you a love and a compassion from himself. But you need to remember something. You can never make somebody else love you. And that's the hard part of these relationships is that the kid doesn't love you back. You make up your mind that with grace and love and compassion, you will love their children. But just remember, you can't make the kid love you. Thirdly, never force your spouse to choose between you and their children. Did you get that? That's what Sarah did. It's almost like an unspoken thing. Get them out of here or I'm out of here. Never force your spouse to choose your love versus the love of their biological children or previously adopted children, whatever the, all kinds of circumstances. I don't even try to describe which kind of circumstances there could be. They're endless. The interwoven, complicated strings. Listen, jealousy, insecurity, and manipulation will ruin your marriage. Do you hear me? Fourthly, and this is, this is the biggest one, really. Know that the will of God for your family, blended or not, broken or whole, no matter how complex, always begins right now. Know that the will of God for any family, blended or not, no matter how complex or simple, always begins Right now. What is God's will for your family? How do you live biblically? How do you live with a grace and a love for one another? Listen, I, I was a little boy when my Aunt Vira, my Aunt Vira was an old spinster school teacher taught in a one-room schoolhouse in, in Wisconsin, uh, eight grades with a pot-bellied stove back in, you know, before World War I, probably is when she started teaching. She was old in the 60s when I was a little boy. And she made my brother and I these patchwork quilts. My wife to this day enjoys having this. I took it this morning early off the ottoman in our family room where Janet has it folded. She enjoys it being there. I was thinking about these swatches. I didn't take time to look and see if I recognized any of them. Some wool skirts, maybe. Maybe some curtains. and Oh, there's some... It must have been into the 60s. Somebody had a pair of pants or something made out of that polyester stuff. <laughs> you know, nobody's got the clothes or the curtains that these things were made out of. You know, you, you can divide and hash up your whole life. And you can dwell on the pieces. And the pieces all float away. And it, it, you can't get it all together. Or you can... You can let God take the pieces of your life and the, the segments of your fragmented family and you can let God sew it together into a useful, precious, treasured patchwork family quilt. You know what I'm saying? You can't go back once the car's rolled in the ditch and you're bangled up and the, and the, and the luggage is spread out all over I-81. 
You can't put that day back together. Forget it. Get up and look forward. And by God's grace, let him begin to put a a work together in your family, bringing the pieces together so that you can be a testimony of his grace, right? The fighting has to stop, the bickering, the anger. I know some of you are in it so difficult and hard. And I don't even, I don't have answers. It's got to be God. And I just want to encourage you to not do like Sarah did that day in the middle of a beautiful party, force her husband to break his heart and drive his boy away. Let's start with the will of God today for our family, right? Amen. Just trust him and obey him and go every day, okay? Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that um, we are really good at tangling up things and we can really mess them up. And so we want to say thank you for your grace. Thank you that we don't have to have some level of uh, perfection in a perfect home and family to even know your salvation and that there's no work of the flesh or law that can do it. It's only by your grace through faith. And it's that same grace and kindness with which you will hold us in your arms and put us back together. Lord, the scars will never go away. We will never look like we used to look. But by God's grace, you will make us into something new that will be used of you and that will be a testimony to a lost and dying world that God is with us. Would you please encourage hearts here today and minds? These issues and needs are deeply personal, deeply wounding, and long-lasting. And so would you please minister through your Holy Spirit to each one? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.